Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the Realist Podcast in the Dunya, the Three Muslims Podcast. Today we're joined with a very special guest, brother blogging theology, Paul Williams. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. And thank you very much for having me on your amazing channel. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. The work you do, mashallah. You actually, you're someone I've, I've, I've actually been watching for a while now, alhamdulillah, uh, before even coming out to the Dawah scene. Uh, so it's uh, the pleasure is mine. It's right. good to meet you all, actually. All three of you. I mean, so let's let's talk a little bit about Dawah in general, Dawah to uh, non-Muslims. How was your experience with all that? Well, what I do on uh, blogging theology is not really dour. It's um, basically trying to raise the bar when it comes to knowledge about the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So mm -hmm. if, uh, if along the way, um, you know, that, that helps to uh, give people more accurate knowledge about Islam, particularly, that's really great um, because there's a lot of mis misunderstanding and uh, fake news about Islam floating around. And quite a bit of fake news about Christianity, too, uh, to be fair. So, um, yeah, so I, I do it by giving a, um, I, I invite guests, who, some of whom are, um, you know, top of their field academically, uh, professors and scholars to talk about uh, Judaism or Islam or Christianity and the Bible and so on. And so I can learn from them. And, and by extension, other people who are interested can learn as well, hopefully. Wow, that's that's actually uh, very interesting. Very, very interesting. SubhanAllah. So what what are some of the misconceptions that you think are common when it comes to like, you know, Christianity and Islam that people oh, might right. How long have we got? I would need several days to go through them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. The uh, the, the West will be, you, you know, as well as I, better than I, you know, there are many people in the West in North America and in Europe who have uh, wrong ideas about Islam being, a, I don't know, a terrorist religion or um you know being a religion um that doesn't honor jesus for example and that there's nothing to do with jesus of nazareth or moses um but also conversely with with christianity there um uh, there are some misapprehensions about what christianity is i think the main one that the main um misconception i think that muslims many muslims have is that they tend to think that christianity is just one thing it's just like a homogenous religion with a similar set of doctrines, and it's what basically evangelicals believe, really. So it's all focused on the Bible and so on. But actually, most Christians today are not like that. They're Catholics or Orthodox Christians, and they don't really focus on the Bible. They focus on the teaching of the church, and they have a different way of understanding the scriptures anyway. And so I think a lot of Christian, sorry, Muslim apologetics and dawah is focused on a minority group within the Christian church globally and not the elephant in the room, <laughs> which is which is actually a little bit different. I mean, there is a huge overlap, but there is a different character to it uh, and a different focus within most Christians in the world. And it's not what we think of as evangelicals believing. It's a little bit different. So I think there's a, mis a misconception there. It's not a huge problem, but it's just, a, just needs to refocus it a bit, in my view. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like when it comes to, you know, speaking with Christians, conversing with Christians, we shouldn't be quoting the Bible as much as we do. Perhaps. Yes, I think that, yes, actually. I, I mean, for some Christians, uh, quoting the Bible is absolutely fine. But um, I mean, wh when the Quran, for example, tells the, the biblical stories, it doesn't, it doesn't, and this is just my personal view, but it doesn't actually quote the Bible anywhere, or at least perhaps only in one place. It quotes a, a verse from the psalm, it says, and the psalmist says. But nearly all of the time, the Quran is not quoting the Bible. It's talking about the stories we find in the biblical tradition, like the, the story of Moses or, or Joseph or Jesus and so on, um, especially Moses particularly. But it, it tells them in its own way and uh, sometimes polemically, I think, in correcting um, the, uh, the stories we see in the Bible. So it's not really quoting the Bible. It's saying, well, this is what really happened. You know, you, you say this about Jesus or this about Moses, but this is what really happened. Uh, according to the Quran, so it, it, it has a slightly different way of doing it, but perhaps yeah, and of course the huge emphasis on Tawheed as well in the in the Quran, uh, the, the the unique oneness of God as opposed to the threeness of God we see in much of Christianity. Yeah, Subhanallah. So you mentioned the elephant in the room. So I have to ask, what exactly is the elephant in the room? Well, I, I meant for. Um, 
Muslim perceptions of Christianity, I, I would say Muslim, these are Muslims I know. I mean, I don't know what Muslims' perceptions are, say, in China or uh, in South America or something, I'm just talking about the Muslims I know, in that it seems to be focused on an evangelical paradigm of what Christianity is. So it's all about the New Testament, the Gospels, it's about the Bible, uh, justification by faith, it's about Paul's theology, particularly, um, very big focus on that. But that's quite different from a more Catholic understanding, which is focused on the teaching of the church and the, the magisterium and the pope uh, and the importance of saints, uh, obviously the Virgin Mary uh, and, uh, and the mass as well. And the idea of the, uh, the presentness of Jesus' sacrifice in the mass um, is quite a different focus. And um, I don't see so much um, Islamic kind of critique of that. Um, yeah. It's, you know, a, a really, um, that's just my experience. It may not be true elsewhere, though. Yeah. I mean, now that I think about it from everything I've observed, and even myself, when I speak to Christians, a lot of it is just like, oh, well, you know, Jesus said this, this that, or Jesus didn't explicitly say this, this, that, according to the Bible. And I find that it's not usually very effective. So, I mean, to me, it does make sense. Because well, one thing is, is it, here's an example of an important difference. Um, what is the word of God for most Christians? Well, evangelicals by the way would say the bible the bible is the word of god but for most christians i catholics and the orthodox by which i mean roman uh, sorry russian orthodox greek orthodox coptics and so on tradition with a big t is also called the word of god and the second vatican council the catholic church is explicit about this so the word of god is found in the holy scriptures and in the tradition of the church what is that the creeds and the councils of the church and they teach infallibly, according to Catholics and the Orthodox, the first seven councils anyway, uh, the truth about Jesus and Mary and, and so on and God. Um, so uh, the word of God is not just the books of the Bible. It's also the tradition with a capital T of the church. Mm -hmm. So when you say, where does it say in the word of God that Jesus came to be God? Well, they can point to Nicaea and say, well, Nicaea says he's God. <laughs> and, and that is a Catholic answer that makes sense for them. So, you, you, you know, that does say openly in their in their uh, tradition, in their word of God, as they call it. I mean, just do you know what I mean? So with an evangelical, you wouldn't have that answer. You wouldn't point to the councils and the creed. You just say, well, where does it say in John's gospel? Where does it say in Matthew or Mark or Luke? Yeah. Oh, it's kind of a lot. So. Okay, so so would it then be more beneficial? I mean, when let's say with dealing with Catholics, you know, speaking with Catholics, for example, to speak yeah. about their their doctrines and their beliefs as a whole, like how exactly does it make sense? Uh, like the, of this, how do we make sense of the sacrifice for all of humanity? You know, can someone be a murderer but believe in Jesus and then be forgiven? Would it be more? Uh, would it make more sense to address the doctrines and their beliefs rather than, you know, God's word said this and that? I just give my own personal answer. Um, one of the most, um, come back to the Quran here, one of the most impressive, one of the, the surahs, that, one of my favorite surahs is Surah Al-Ikhlas, the 112th surah chapter of the Quran. And um, it, it, it's amazing in Arabic, of course, because you can hear not so how it rhymes. It's all kind of beautiful, uh, beautiful rhetoric, if you like. But in, my, in one of my favorite English translations by Muhammad Assad, he translates it, and I've got it up here on my screen here, uh, this is the 112th surah. This is an answer to your question, by the way. I'm, I'm getting there. Say he is the one God, God, the eternal, the uncaused cause of all being. He begets not and neither is he begotten. And there is nothing that could be compared with him. Hmm. Now, that for me is extraordinary because when you look at this in more detail, the first verse there, say he is the one God seems to be a confirmation of the Jewish Shema, that's Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the same word, echad. You know, Hebrew even sounds the same in Hebrew and Arabic. Um, and it seems the, the Quran there is universalizing uh, the Shema by just dropping off uh, the reference to Israel. So here, here is, he is the one God. And then very interestingly, in verse three, he begets not, neither is he begotten. There's an echo there of the Nicene Creed, which I just mentioned. The idea of, it says in the Nicene Creed, uh, that the son is begotten um, of the father. And the Quran says he begets not, this is God, and neither is he begotten. 
And for me, this is a brilliant example of what I call precision theology. Mm. Precision theology. And why it matters is because Jesus, according to the Christian gospel in Mark, because the earliest gospel, was asked, what is the greatest commandment, according to Mark? And he actually recited the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, which the Quran is confirming itself. So the Quran, the Quran is agreeing with Jesus, seemingly, about the Shema. What is Shema? The Shema says the Lord is one, not three in one, not a trinity of persons, but one alone. So this is an affirmation of Tawheed. Mm-hmm. But also in in verse three, as I've already said, it contains a critique, a uh, polemical refutation of the word, you know, the, the word in the Catholic sense uh, in the creed of Nicaea, which does say he was begotten, eternally begotten of the father. So what it's doing here is taking sides. It's saying yes to G- what Jesus preached. And of course, what Jesus preached is what Moses preached in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. So it's affirming Judaism. Uh, and Jesus is in that tradition, and Islam also is in that same tradition, and it's rejecting the uh, the later Catholic fourth century understanding of um, the Son and the Father being of the same substance. Now, this is brilliant precision theology, and um, so in answer to your question, a long way around, I, I, I wouldn't go, for me, I mean, everyone could do what they wish, but for me, um, the heart of the matter is... Um, contained in this surah 112 uh, the concept of god and the quran is affirming tawhid which is the very same concept of god that jesus had which is the very same concept of god that moses had and thus all the jewish prophets so i i would i would go there and say look what did jesus teach about god uh, and and what did moses teach about god and this is what the quran teaches is affirming that is confirming that but your church says something else. And hmm. perhaps we should look to Jesus himself hmm. and Moses rather than later tradition uh, in centuries after Jesus, which, which actually doesn't confirm what Jesus said or what Moses said. Um, so that, that's kind of how I, it's just one way of doing it, by the way. It's just, yeah. So it's, it's putting Tawheed at the center of a, a dialogue about um, between Catholicism and mm. slash orthodoxy, because together they make up the vast majority of Christians in the world. Yeah. Evangelicals are a small fraction of that. Wow. It's kind of mm. long. You know, once one time, I'm going to pass the mic to, to the brothers here. I don't want to hug it the whole time, inshallah. I'm just, you know, very, very curious here. But uh, one time a brother did tell me, you know, um, Tawheed refutes Trinitarianism. Because I was going to have a debate on it once the guys kind of fought later, but I was going to discuss it with them. And he, the brother told me, Tawheed defeats Trinitarianism. It refutes it. So just talk about Tawheed. Yeah. And I thought like, okay, yeah, you know, it makes sense. One God versus three and one. It's a refutation. But this just brought it to a whole other level for me. It's like literally, their their sayings, word by word, the Quran refutes it. Tawheed, it yeah. was, refutes it. Yeah. Uh, I must say, I, I can't take any credit for this insight. That this insight has been noted. So this, um, what I've just mentioned, I'm sure Muslim scholars have noticed this, but Western scholars... Uh, are talking about this. Um, uh, people like um, uh, Nikolai Sinai, professor at Oxford. Um, he's written a book recently called uh, Historical Critical Introduction to the Quran. He notices this. Um, and another chap called Neil Robinson, a prominent British uh, academic in, um, in another uh, dictionary of the Quran. He mentions this. Uh, Angelica Newworth, mispronounced her name, very, very prominent, probably the most senior, well known. Um, Quranic scholar in the West, she mentions this, that they notice that the Quran is polemically engaging Christian theology um, and reaffirming the Shema. Um, and, and so this is this is interesting because, you know, many Christians might not appreciate quite how sophisticated the Quran is in its interaction um, with Christianity. It really is, as I say, a, 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 a very fine piece of precision polemic. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Sorry, guys. Do you have anything to add? Like you want... Bro, I just had two offhanded questions, man. They're not related, but they've been on my mind. So one, what is your favorite surah of the Quran? Unless it's surah class. And then number two, what's your favorite hadith? 
Oh gosh. Well, uh, at, the, at the moment, so uh, Iklas is because we're talking about him. But to be honest, I, I'm, always, I'm always changing my mind on that. But um, there, there's an embarrassment of riches there. So I, I think if I had to choose one, it would be the 112th. Um, the favorite hadith. You know, I, I I tend to read hadith every day, and I, I draw most of them from this book, the Book of Hadith, uh, compiled by Charles Guy Eaton. He was um, an English revert. Um, he was a Muslim for over 50 years. He died just a few years ago. He was a British diplomat. Um, and uh, the grand, some people call him the grandfather of British Islam. Anyway, he compiled this book of Hadith. Um, and I, I just um, shamelessly read from this. It's so good. Um, and um, there's, there's too many jewels, really, to say, I, I like this jewel rather than that jewel. They're all jewels. I mean, I, they're just amazing. MashaAllah. So which one stuck out to you the most by far? Um, well, when I, uh, when I, whenever I come across new ones, you know, that comes my new favorite. I don't really have one uh, particular favorite. I, I need to have a look at them and remind myself. But they're, they're all, as I say, it's, it's too many, too many amazing mm -hmm. things to say. This one is obviously my favorite favorite. And uh, it also depends on my mood and where I'm at in my life. You know, sometimes a Hadith may be more powerful to me than... At another time, so I can't really answer that question, unfortunately. Yeah, my favorite hadith I'd have to say is the one where it's narrated that the uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam enjoyed a good piece of chicken. Mashallah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Uh, I see. I was gonna say I don't remember that in Bukhari, but. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a it is a hadith. I don't know the source for it. It is a hadith. I'm sure the prophet said that at some point, so it wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> so, given that you were, I'm assuming you weren't born Muslim. Uh, what was your first, at least, interaction with Islam? What was your first ever introduction in your life? Well, I, I before I came in contact with actual Muslims in my local mosque in London, I, I was quite, I was very Islamophobic. So I, I believe that um, Islam was a, a terrorist religion, you know, after 9-11 and uh, a danger to the West and, um, and so on. So, um, whoops, let me just switch that off. Um, let me uh, close that down. So um, I, I decided um, because I, I thought sometimes I, I knew that some, sometimes the media misrepresented the truth. And I was getting my information from the usual suspects. And I thought, well, I'm going to go and talk to Muslims to find out what's really going on. So I went to my local mosque, Regent's Park Mosque uh, in London, and met real Muslims. There. I was a Christian at the time. And um, and so learned about Islam. And that was quite a revelation. And I, um, it was the discovery that the spiritual depth that I saw in Christianity, the spirituality, um, which was very important to me, also existed in Islam as well. And it may sound really naive thing to say, but it really was a revelation to me um, and that in many ways at the heart of Christianity, uh, you see the same kinds of uh, concerns and, and dynamics and uh, uh, even concepts that you find in much of Christianity and in Islam as well. So th that commonality forced me to reassess um, my position towards Islam and also discover this completely unknown thing about Islam, which was this man called Muhammad. Um, who I had been taught precisely nothing about at school. And um, so to learn about his, his, his life as Sira, obviously Hadith, and so on was uh, quite extraordinary. And uh, it, was, it was shocking how ignorant I was and how we generally are in the West. You know, we learn about Julius Caesar, uh, Alexander the Great, who conquered, you know, so many countries. And he's called the Great, by the way, even though he conquered a lot of people. Or we learn about, you know, here in France, Napoleon. Is, is, is it... French stamps, new stamps coming out now with pictures of Napoleon on. I mean, he was a dictator. You know I mean, um, um, but no one is mentioning Muhammad. And yet, you know, he 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 surpassed. You know, he was he excelled in every area as a, a military leader, as a general, as a, um, a head of state, as a father, as a, a prophet, as a spiritual mystic almost. Um and so on and so on. He, he, he just excelled in so many areas, looking at it purely humanly here. Um, so whilst you can compare him to individuals, great individuals in history, they excelled in only one area, perhaps. Like Alexander the Great was a great general. Yeah. 
but Muhammad was a great general too, and he was all these other things as well. So as an all-rounder, interdisciplinary genius, um, he, he uh, is pretty unique. I don't know of anyone else historically who can match him, just on a purely human level, I mean. And yet we don't really know anything about him in the West, except bad things, perhaps. So you say that once you started to find out about the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that's when it was just kind of the turning point for you. And then you, you kind of started to dive in it even more and like look into it yeah. even more. I, I, I've always been interested in um, the uh, the relationship between the Abrahamic faiths. So uh, I, I, I've gone quite deep into Christianity academically and as a practicing Christian. And uh, in discovering Islam, then I wanted to, to understand that. So I had to, I realized I had a lot of catching up to do. So involved a lot of reading and thinking and um, reassessing. Um, and, and just as a, an add on to that, it was only two or three years ago, I think, that I even began to start looking at Judaism. And, you know, as a, as a Christian, or as, when I was a Christian, you think, oh, you know what Judaism is. It's the Old Testament. But that's not Judaism. That, that, that's kind of a Christian take on things real judaism is something else it's based on the uh the talmud and the mission of the gemara and you know rabbinic judaism is not the same as the israelite uh, faith that um jesus knew about and Moses. i mean it's much more interesting and complicated so that, that was a uh, that's the last thing i began to become acquainted with um in the the three abrahamic faiths so and then, of course, the relationship between the three of them fascinates me historically, theologically, uh, the inter interconnectedness and the political issues, because relations with Jews now, Muslims and Jews, is particularly awful. But it didn't used to be. It used to be excellent. Well, it used to be oftentimes, more often than not, very, very good. Uh, you know, the Jews found a, a home and they were allowed to prosper um, in the Muslim empire, you know, the Ottoman empire, whatever. Things are very different now since a certain event in the 1940s, which we won't go into. But um, um, so it, on every level, uh, I, I've had to reassess uh, spiritually my own, you know, was Muhammad a prophet of God? So I had to ask, you know, that question forced itself on me. And I, I came to the conclusion um, a little bit reluctantly that he had to be, uh, because if Moses is a prophet of God, Muhammad's a prophet of God. You know, they're, they're, they're so similar. Really, you can't have Moses not have Muhammad. There's no difference. They're both, they preach the same thing. They have a very, very similar kind of understanding of uh, human society and the role of the, the law, the divine law, uh, and so on and so on. Emphasis on God and his mercy and his oneness and so on. And Jesus reaffirms that. So, um, you know, so yeah, I, I came to uh, understand that he, he was a, a prophet as well, um, as well as all the other prophets. Uh, mm. But the big thing to change for me was uh, losing um, any belief that Jesus was God or God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. That's, that was the hardest thing to go. Um, and it did go. It had to go. Well, what, man, I got a lot of questions, so I'm going to try to, like, simplify it. Uh, what caused, first off, this whole thing to go for you, this whole uh, notion that Jesus was God? Um, I think uh, I was, a, I remember in my teens, um, I, I met some Christians and I went to the church and I was spiritually hungry and I went to a, um, a Baptist church where I became a Christian and they, they preached and they still preach a lovely story. Uh, the idea that God loves you so much that he became a human being and died for your sins is, is a very romantic story. It's, you know, wow. The creator of the universe loves me so much he would die for me and then rise again on the third day, etc. So I, I was, uh, if you hear this preached by a good preacher who's skilled with words and, you know, he can emotionally connect with the congregation and, you know, try and get you to believe. And you can really, fall, you can fall in love with this idea and people do. Uh, and you want to give your life to it. So you give your life to Jesus. Um and, and so I found it very attractive at once. I mean, initially I didn't believe it, but over time you, I came to believe it. And so I became a born again Christian. Um, so it wasn't 
that I had in any way a, a sophisticated concept of God or understand the logical or rational issues involved or understood anything about the historical Jesus, who he really was, according to mainstream biblical scholarship, none of that. It was I was sold on an idea, on a romantic story, a legend, which is powerful. I mean, I say it's, you know, millions and millions of people uh, embrace this idea, um, which is why they don't give it up so easily. If Islam Muslims come along, well, why should they? They, that they, they, you know, their God died for them. You know, I mean, the fact that God doesn't die and that God is immortal and their own Bible says that, and and why does God have to die anyway? He can He can forgive people. Surely He's He is merciful. You know, apart all these all these responses are are valid, but they don't really. You, you're in a in a an echo chamber. You're you're hearing the same things come back to you from fellow Christians, um, and you become part of a fellowship which can be very affirming and loving. And uh, you know you can have a great bond there with other people, which I did. Um, and I still think that eighty percent of Christianity is true. Uh, it's like an iceberg that we don't see. We see the top. 20%, which Muslims don't agree with, but most of it, we Muslims do agree. So, you know, what there is what, that they believe in one God, they believe in, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They believe in the day of judgment, heaven and hell. They believe in angels and demons. They believe that Moses was sent by God. You know, the list goes on and on and on and on. You know, and this is what Christians believe, uh, overwhelmingly similar to Muslims. But on certain key points, the concept of God, and the role of divine law in society, which they've kind of abandoned, really, out of this kind of passionate love affair with God. They, they, don't long, they, they feel they no longer need um, the Sharia or the Halakha, uh, which was abandoned pretty early on by people like Paul, who decided to abandon God's law for a different kind of living. Um, there are some pretty important issues like that, of course. But what was it that cause you to finally see that okay it, it's just god god is god jesus is not god jesus was a prophet a peace yeah what, what what i did i i went to um university as a full-time student at london university to study theology christian it's called bachelor of divinity the degree in um the bible and christian theology and all that um when i when i entered the university i was an evangelical christian and uh and I was not prepared, really, for what hit me, because uh, even though I was in a, a nominally Catholic college called um, Heathrop, it was a very old college, part of the University of London, um, uh, they taught a very secular kind of hard-nosed his, um, historical understanding of the Bible. And, uh, um, and to cut a long story short, I left. I didn't finish the degree because I was asked to write a paper on the Exodus, but I was told that we had to assume the exodus didn't happen, that it was purely a literary kind of exercise. And I thought, no, 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 this is all wrong. I'm not, I'm not writing an essay on the assumption the exodus didn't happen. Um, so the exodus from, you know, the Israelites from Egypt and Moses and all that. And I kind of left thinking, I left thinking, no. Uh, and the problem is I, I did learn some things about Jesus at university, uh, um, which I wasn't able to take on board as well because I believed in the Trinity. Uh, and the historical evidence suggests suggests to virtually all scholars that Jesus himself did not think he was God and that he himself considered himself to be a prophet and, and possibly a messiah. That's how that's the consensus of scholarship. So when I left there, I um, to cut a long story short, when I encountered real Islam um, and realized that there was another way of being right with God or having a relationship with God that didn't involve Trinitarian Christianity, I went back to the scholarship that I couldn't really handle then, on Jesus, I mean, and reread some of it. And with, with an eye to being fearless, to the, where do the evidence lead? And these, these scholars overwhelmingly are Christians, by the way, people like Jimmy Dunn, for example, and others. And... Um, the evidence was quite clear that the historical Jesus, as far as we could tell, did not think that he was God. And, you know, that, that, that is the, the, the very, very likely fact of history. Um, and if that's the case, why do I know better than Jesus about who he is? You know, I, I, so, you know, I, I kind of end up agreeing with Jesus. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so 
with that being said, what do you think the alteration occurred? Like, what do you think it, the message just kind of got misconstrued? And instead of, you know, it being that Jesus was a prophet, peace be upon him, it now is that Jesus is a God. That's a very good question. I did think that was the original, uh, yeah, an excellent question. And it's, it's one that I tried to look into. I, I think the way that most biblical scholars now, for the last 150 years, have answered that question, which is one that they've looked at, is, is the following. That Jesus himself, according to the best evidence, went around preaching the kingdom of God. That's, that's what it looks like in the Gospels. They're talking about God's reign uh people's lives uh how to and and jesus taught his particular interpretation of the jewish law so there was a great emphasis on mercy on niat sincerity and it's the first first hadith in bukhari well um and god's love um rather than in a kind of um petty legalism which kind of alienated people from god uh, and a great concern for the poor and all of these themes are very islamic as well of course um, but they're there in the earliest evidence. So Jesus, it seems, saw himself in the tradition of the Jewish prophets. He was preaching a purified understanding of the faith based on sincerity and, and you know, the good values of faith, love and mercy and so on. OK. Fast forward to, say, someone like Paul who's a major figure in the New Testament, he, he never met Jesus. I, I know he says he had vis a vision, but he never met the historical Jesus. What did he say his faith was? Well, his faith was based in, was a religion about Jesus. So he put his faith in Jesus as a dying and rising savior. So Jesus for him died on the cross for his sins and rose again on the third day. And through that death and resurrection, Paul himself or people in general can be forgiven and reconciled to God, and that's the way to salvation. Now, it, it, it's an obvious point that these are two different religions. Jesus didn't go around preaching his own death and resurrection and salvation by believing in him. But that's what Paul taught, and that is the Paul's gospel, and that is the Christian gospel that is believed today. So uh, to really simplify it, we have two things. We have uh, the religion of Jesus, and we have the religion about Jesus. And that is the difference. So I think Muslims, many Muslims might argue that Islam uh, confirms or reaffirms the religion of Jesus, but not the religion about Jesus. That, that in a sense, is, is a fundamental dichotomy that we see at work here jesus didn't go around preaching christianity it seems that he had no intention of founding a new religion he was a jew preaching to jews about judaism uh, as a jewish prophet and did you still find that in the gospels in matthew it says you know i i have only been sent to the lost sheep of the house of israel he's not been sent for us if we're gentiles and there's a very similar saying in the quran where Jesus only sent to the Israelites. Um, but uh, long after that, you know, with Paul and the Catholic Church, um, you have a Gentile religion, which is based on faith in Jesus as a dying and rising savior, who became divine, uh, he became a divine figure, and at Nicaea, he was God. But Jesus, so Jesus moved all the way from being a prophet to a God in a couple of centuries. Um, and I suppose Islam would be an attempt to cut away from that and say, going back to the, the religion of Jesus, um, not identically, because Islam, of course, doesn't say become Jews, but it says with the coming of the prophet, um, confirming the truth of the previous revelations, but that there is a final statement for all mankind about what how we should follow God. So some some I think some of the Jewish laws are abrogated um, on certain issues. But fundamentally, it's the same, I think. Hmm. That's insane, man. When, insane. when you put it like that, that's insane. That must be a Canadian way of saying you agree with it, I hope. Oh, I'm not Canadian, but uh, <laughs> oh these two oh, are. Okay, sorry. I'm American, so. My yeah, but I do, I agree with it. And I think what's crazy is that when you go into these churches and 
you know, how you said they, they're preaching this uh, new thing. They're preaching something that's it's altered. It's not like the main message. It's not what's supposed to be put across. It appeals to the emotions. It not even appeals. I'd say it more so manipulates the emotions. Because like you said, you have these preachers who have a way with words. And they have a presence when they speak. And then on top of that, they have that, um, they got that worship type music going yeah. on in the background. Uh, yeah. I, I can't even do the sound effect. It was like, doom, doom, doom. And then, like, it, it makes it just, like, more impactful, like, what they're saying. But if you were to strip all that away, you would put, like, a layman up there speaking about it. You, It wouldn't appeal to your emotions. And it's like a part of you would kind of just be like, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. I, I see. Yeah, I think, uh, and you get that in a much more rarefied way in um, high church Catholic settings, where you have beautiful music, you have Bach or Palestrina or something play with a choir and an organ and so on, or you can have something like a pop concert, where you, uh, uh, particularly in American mega churches, where they have guitars and drums and uh, and people really going for it. And it whips up the emotions. Everyone gets really excited. And you think, wow, I can really feel the presence of God. But actually what they're doing is it's a human emotion because of the buzz of the place. It's like going to see a concert. You know, you, well, you know it, it, it's all hyped up and you come away feeling, wow, isn't Christianity amazing? But what you've actually experienced is a very human thing. And uh, you compare that with um, if you have congregational prayer at a mosque, no music at all, obviously. And uh, depending on the time of day, you may only just hear the person who, you know, the imam reciting mm. the Quran. Um, so it's very sober and it's very understated. I, I mean, aesthetically. And so you can really, um, in your presence, you can be there and focus and not just be, te- ke- ke- you know, taken up with the beat mm. and the music and the mm. charisma of the preacher who, if he's really good, well, like a good salesman, he's trying to sell you something. You don't have any of that. It just doesn't exist in Islam. Um, but as I'm trying to say, there's a reason why it doesn't exist in Islam. So I think that there is a sense of, of it reminds me of that, that hadith when, um, I can't remember, I think it was in Bukhari, when um, uh, Muhammad had a, a vision. He was offered a choice between milk and wine, and he chose milk to drink and not wine. And I think in that kind of, if you ch- wine is makes you inebriated, it makes you happy and all this but it's not real it, it's chemically induced whereas milk is just nutritious and healthy and keeps you you know in a good place whereas wine can go off into you know so i think that, that there's a difference between that even just in the symbolism of wine and milk there in that hadith mm. it's, it's nutritious and healthy for those that aren't like those intolerant mm. <laughs> true <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so you had said that you, you it's very interesting to you, the uh, similarities. And you said the similarity between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. So yeah. what are these similarities that you found, aside from the obvious ones? Well, the obvious ones are quite, quite a long list. That's the point. There's a lot of obvious similarities. Um, just the, the idea, for example, that the universe is created by God. That may sound really trivial, but it's not in the history of religion. Look at Hinduism or pantheism or atheism or, uh, you know, uh, the, or the idea that we're kind of part of the universe and God maybe is a bit beyond that. So panentheism. Yeah, but in, in Islam, Christianity, Judaism, there's a clear separation between the creator and the, cre- the creation. So God is a necessary being and we are contingent beings. And, and that and that conceptual clarity is absolutely fundamental. And also the, the idea that life after death, that w- there will be a, a day of judgment and uh, and a reckoning and the separation between the people, heaven and hell, is also key in all three Abrahamic faiths. And, and also traditionally, the, the moral code is the same. Uh, sexual morality, for example, traditionally, uh, Christian sexual morality and Jewish, um, the Halakha and, and Islamic sector is pretty much the same. I mean, there are slight variations. So in, in the Sharia, uh, polygamy is permitted, although it's quite rare for obvious mm. reasons. Um, and it's permitted in the Bible. Uh, Christians don't seem to realize this. It's legislated for in the in the Bible. So it's not banned. 
Um, so there are, and it's not been Christianity now, it's, it's monogamy. So there are those slight differences, but fundamentally in the union of man and woman, for example, and the idea that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he made man male and female, it says in Genesis 1, man and woman. And as it says in, in the Quran, you know, he, he created the man is not like, the male is not like the female. This, this um, simple binary difference now, this is really controversial in our time, in Canada, in America, uh -huh. in France. If you say that, you can be, you can lose your job. You could be accused of hate crime. It's really weird. But it's there in the DNA of Judaism and in Christianity and in Islam. In other words, it's there in the DNA of the majority of mankind, because three together is most of, most of our species. But the West now is attacking this notion. Uh, and, and, and enforcing a very different understanding that there there is no male and female, despite what God has says in his word. Um, it's all kind of cultural, it's all a social construct and all that. But the, the, the flea face are agreed that actually no, we're made by God in two fundamentally different forms, male and female. And that tells us, and, and, and along with that goes an emotional and psychological and even spiritual difference in terms of what we are as humans. Um, but modernity would say would, would attack that. It does attack that mm, yeah. um, with, with really damaging consequences. This is a different subject. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, have you looked into other religions and other spiritual practices, or just the uh, Abrahamics? Um, I once read a book on Hinduism. I think it was Teach Yourself Hinduism or something, and I read the whole book. And I still have no idea what Hinduism. Is. I, don't, I don't get it. I, I, you know, I just don't get it. I, it's yeah. because I'm a Westerner. If I was in India, it's an Indian religion basically. I, I would, and live there, and kind of sucked up the atmosphere, and the, perhaps it would begin to make sense. But I think reading a book is not a great idea, and that's not what it's about. But uh, um, so um, I think I've noticed that most religions now and throughout history have ultimately believed in one God, mm. actually. I mean, even the Quraysh, before the Prophet came, they believed that there was one God, but they also believed there were lots of intermediaries and other things, of course. But at least they did believe in one supreme God. And so that seems to be the norm in many African religions. It's the same, apparently. And even in many forms of Hinduism, some of them are Unitarian in believing in one God. I know it might not seem that way, but some some forms of you know, uh, Hinduism are not polytheistic in that sense. Um, but that seems yeah. to be the default position of mankind, is belief in one God. But it's often mixed up and associated with other agencies and intermediaries and angelic figures or lesser deities and whatnot. Um, and that's one of the points of the Quran, isn't it, about shirk, about polytheism. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, it reminds me too of... Um... Roman mythology, Greek mythology, yeah. Norse mythology. There's always that supreme yes. God. There's always like that one. And yes. it, it kind of always brings me back to this understanding of like, we've been playing the telephone game ever since the creation of time. And it's like the moment that the, the message gets altered, it's, it's game over and, and then God moves on to the next person or the next group of people to transmit that message. Because... If you look at everything, it, it all has too many similarities to discount, to discredit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, one of the one of the, the fantastic things that uh, it teaches in the Quran, it's there in um, Hadith, is this concept of fitra, uh, that the idea that there's is an innate human disposition that we have as a species to believe in the transcendent, to believe in God, need to worship Him, but also a sense of justice, right and wrong, and so on. And Ibn Tamir, who I'm very very keen on, but um, different subject, but you know, he, he really elaborated uh, this idea of the fitra in his writings very helpfully, uh, took it to the next level. Um, and I think we see that in the religions. We, uh, you know, people instinctively believe in God. This is the natural default position, but it can become, as you say, messed up with all sorts of other practices, which, um, you know, and that's one of the, the, the logic of Islam is to try and purify that. <laughs> Yeah. And it's beautiful, too, how in that certain part, I don't know which part it is, if one of you knows it, by all means, chime in, but where God says, like, today I have uh, completed my favor upon you and completed the religion. 
know, like the that means the entire message has been transmitted, which yeah. I mean that's that's beautiful. And to what you were saying before about the Hinduism, don't quote me a hundred percent on this. I want you to look into it as well as anyone else watching this. But in the beginning of Hinduism, like if you look at the the Vedas, it says there's only one God. Yeah. Yeah, it says there's only one God, and I even have this friend, two friends actually, who are Hindu, and they said that like 0.2% of like the actual people who are Hindu who claim to be Hindu understand that there is only one God. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I know that, right? That rings true. So speaking about like the fitra and people innately believing in you know one God, why is it that we live in a in a time and a place where atheism is so like popular nowadays? And it seems almost as if actually I'll just summarize it with this video. I saw a video on TikTok, and it was like um, basically you know someone shared their opinion and then someone stitched it and they shared their opinion that um, religion is just meant to control people, manipulate their minds, and people who follow religion in the 21st century are people who lack critical thinking, which I think is very ironic since their entire video lacked critical thinking. It was such a vast generalization of, of you know, uh, all the religions and religious people. So why do you think we live in such a time where atheism is like the, the standard, even though it's really ironic, to be honest, that they claim to be intellectuals? Uh, yeah, I, I, I had a big misunderstanding about this whole issue uh, until a year or so ago, and I came across some research done by the University of Oxford, and I've done a video on this earlier this year, actually, mm -hmm. and they wanted to, to investigate whether or not the, the, the religious sense that people have, because most people in the world are religious today, mm -hmm. despite atheism, uh, that they wanted to investigate in a very kind of objective, scientific way if religion was something intrinsic to our human nature or something that children were brainwashed into, something mm -hmm. you acquired through culture, parents, priests, whatever. And they came to the conclusion, after exhaustive research, uh, that uh, the religious instinct, the sense of religion, is, is intrinsic in the DNA of our species. Okay? It's what it is to be human. We human beings would seem to be uh, we can't help being religious. It's what we're what we're like. So the idea that so atheism is a problem that needs to be explained rather than faith. Uh, a religious sense seems to be natural to our species. And then it came across another bit of research much more recently. Five universities in Britain teamed together and did some global research into atheism, atheists, to find out what they really believed. And if you heard this, absolutely extraordinary research. The University of Kent, I did a whole list, I did a video on this as well, of course, it's such an interesting subject. And they found that the majority of self-described atheists, these are people in Japan, in North America, uh, sorry, in, in Europe, South America, uh, you know, they, they picked some representative countries around the world for different population groups and different faiths backgrounds. Most atheists on earth believe in the supernatural. What? How can that be? They believe in angels, they believe in life after death. They say they don't believe in God, but these, you see, when I think of, when I used to think of atheists, I thought people like Richard Dawkins, the famous British biologist, who is a materialist. So he rejects God, angels, everything. You know, he reduces all phenomena in the universe to his materialistic understanding of the world. But he's not typical of atheists, you would seem. Most, athe most atheists do believe in the supernatural. Uh, and this would be whether it be atheists in China or in Finland or wherever. So when we say about the rise of atheism, what are we talking about? For most atheists, they do believe in what the Quran talks about. You know, they just don't believe in God. Now, I have no idea why they don't believe in God, given they believe in everything else. I don't see what the problem is. But it's not that they're materialists who reject the supernatural. No. A minority of atheists do. Most atheists embrace the supernatural. That was the conclusion of this academic research you can, look, you can see online globally. So I think what we're looking at, this rise of atheism, we're not really looking at what most even atheists are about. We're talking about um, the kind of public um, attacks on religion that we see, particularly here in France, for example, where the, the state routinely closes mosques down, you say the wrong thing. Uh, and even when the Catholic Church says the wrong thing, they get put down. 
So it's a kind of an ideology, which is a militant secular ideology, which forces down faith. But ordinarily, if the, if the researchers believe, atheists themselves, more often than not, do believe in the supernatural, life after death, angels and demons. I mean, I, I have no idea why. If you can believe in angels and demons, why you don't believe in God, I just don't get it. But anyway, this is this is the case. Um, so my understanding of atheism until I read that was wrong. I thought atheists were like Richard Dawkins. Yeah. Most are not. And this is a problem for the Dawa, by the way, and for, for Christian evangelism. You're going around, oh, you're an atheist, so you don't believe in anything, do you? Well, actually, they may well believe in a whole bunch of stuff that even the Quran teaches, actually. Isn't that amazing? So, uh, our jo- uh, you know, all people of faith have a much easier time talking to atheists now because they can perhaps assume a whole bunch of stuff in common, which you wouldn't really get to expect from the label atheist. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's definitely news to me. Well, it's been long enough to look into that. No, dude. No, it's it's. it's uh, I did a video on it, and I was I was stunned. It was it was broadcast. The the news was mentioned in New Scientist and the British Press, and it was like, wow, atheists tend to believe in the supernatural. And I think, whoop! I didn't. I didn't. I really did not expect that. So I think the problem is is militant secularism, um, which is an ideology which kind of floats above all this. You know, uh, it is not that people, even atheists. You see, mankind is overwhelmingly religious. Even atheists, in the main, are religious in a sense. If they're religious, if it means if you believe in supernatural and you believe in angels, I'd say you're religious. I'd say that. Mm-hmm. But you could call yourself an atheist. <laughs> so that's how crazy this whole thing is. Yeah. Hmm. Subhanallah. So I had a question. So this, this, uh, you sharing all these hadith every day, or at least regularly, or sharing stuff about Islam, do you believe that this proclivity comes from fitra to an extent? What, my sharing? No, so what do you mean? The the tendency that I see in a lot of uh, Muslim channels, like they just love giving da'wah, they just love sharing stuff about the religion. Do you think this this tendency comes from the fitra? Well, to be honest, my answer is very simple. I I, I think there are a lot of really, really great hadith. And I I just think they're amazing. Um, So I, I just... I, I like sharing really good stuff. I, I enjoy it and I want to share it. So that's why I do it. If the Hadith were crap, to be rude, I wouldn't share them. I just wouldn't bother. You know what I mean? I, I share them because they're amazing. Hmm. Um, so it's a natural thing. I, I just like to share these things. So these are amazing sayings. I mean, you, you do get amazing sayings, by the way, in the Bible. Um, but it, it just so happens that there are so many Hadith and there's so, so many that are amazing. But it's just great to share them. I also like sharing ayah from the Quran as well. I don't do that as much, but I could do. Um, because it's just really good to share this stuff. And people like it, and we can all enjoy it. That's why I do it. It's not because I feel that I ought to share hadith. No. If, as I say, if hadith were rubbish, I wouldn't bother. But they're not. They're amazing. So it's a question mm. of, hey, folks, have you heard this one? <laughs> have you heard this one? Have you heard this one? <laughs> That's why I do it. Mashallah. So we we established that there's an overwhelming at least population that we neglect of atheists that do believe in uh I guess pseudo religiosity, right? Yeah. Where would you where would you stem the the cause of the people that don't even believe in that? The people that are like, okay, I don't even believe in anything. And uh do you think it's an issue with them submitting to God or at least humiliating themselves? Because a the trend I see with a lot of these sad people is they're very narcissistic on average and they think like, okay, why would I submit to God? I'm better than that. This is a really, really good question. And there's a, even more, more research. Uh, I did a video on this as well. Um, what they did was, scientists, I think it was in the States, I, I, I'm hazy on the details. I'm just trying to re- recollect what was done. Th- they did uh, an experiment uh, comparing a group of atheists to a group of people of faith to see if they would respond in the same way when to a series of questions. And I think if I remember rightly, I wish I prepared this in advance, by the way, it'd be more precise. But uh, this is under scientific conditions. So you ask, you have a control group of atheists, control group of people of faith, be they Christians or Muslims or whatever. Um, So uh, how did they respond biologically? I mean, they they were being tested. It's not like, what did they say? You could could take their blood pressure, you could take their pulse, you 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 could analyze their physical responses to various verbal stimuli. So uh, what, So I think, again, this is 
from memory, and I probably got this fairly crude, it's a fairly crude remembrance of this, but um, so one question was, how do you respond uh, to uh, the idea of uh, y your neighbor threatening you? So you're, 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 you, you know your neighbor, they're going to threaten you. How would you feel about that? And of course, people feel bad about that, you know, that someone could, could hurt them. And then and everyone felt the same, be you atheist or believer. And another question was, um, how would you feel if, uh, if, if you were told that God would uh, hurt, God would hurt you or, or God would send you to hell? How would you feel about that? Now, an atheist, of course, shouldn't respond to that because it's all spaghetti monster. It's all fiction. It's all myth. The believer, when they'd heard that God was going to send someone to hell or, you know, that God was going to uh, punish someone, uh, and it was true, that they, 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 would re that they did react. It caused a reaction. It, it, it was something that meant something to them. So what was the actual physical outcome? What did the scientists deduce? The scientists discovered that the atheists actually also, despite what they think in their heads, <laughs> they also reacted to the idea that God would do something uh, to, to their loved one or send them to hell or, or curse them or something. I forget the exact formula. But they also instinctively felt that this was uh, something they could react to. In other words, they reacted like people of faith. They couldn't help themselves, mm. even though in their heads they didn't believe any of it. So what does this show? And it shows that, that even atheists, hardcore materialist atheists, still can't help but respond to, to, to like believers do when God is seen as something threatening them or threatening their loved one. You know, appearances can be deceptive. Um, someone can tell you, I'm an atheist, I don't believe anything else. Uh, and if you say to them, well, you know, God's going to curse your mother. And they, oh, I don't believe in God. But deep down, they, they do react. They, they re respond like people who do believe in God. They can't help themselves. They, they, they in a fundamental way, react to this existential reality this theological reality. You see what I mean? I'm explaining it badly, but I'm trying to say that, th that things are not always what they, they seem on the surface. And again, this is, sci this is scientific research that was published. So basically, people of faith and atheists all react to God when a, a threatening scenario involving God is portrayed to them. Uh, even though atheists don't acknowledge it openly, they still biologically, physiologically, emotionally, in their brains, respond to it as if it were real, yeah. even though they deny it. They can't help react to it. <laughs> this, is a, this is a scientific finding. Yeah. So this tells us, to be rude for, for a second, that most atheists are not really atheists. They're fakes. Because deep, deep down, they know the truth. And science is showing this. <laughs> this yeah. is not some kind of theological insight. This is a scientific uh, research is showing this. And I thought that was absolutely extraordinary. So I wonder, you know, if Richard Dawkins, you know, if he was hooked up to a test like this and, you know, someone said to him, a scientist says, you know, and how do you respond to this? You know, and, and God will curse your mother or God will and send your mother to hell. And, you know, he would say, doesn't bother me. I don't believe in God. But actually, deep down, he may be troubled by that like a believer would be. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's not a lot. Bro. I just, I think that's mind-blowing. And just think about it for a second, right? God says in the Quran, Allah says in the Quran. Uh, he, you can't, if if God chooses to lead someone astray, there's nothing anyone can do to bring them back, right? And it's as if they have this veil covering them to where they, they can't see, they can't hear. But that doesn't change the fact that they are still a creation from God. Yeah. And the yeah. fact is that the, the creation from God has that fita, that innate belief. Yeah. And even science is coming on to this now as they go. Humans are just innately religious. Yeah. We're innately religious. So even these atheists who claim to be atheists are, aren't really atheists. Yeah. So it's like, man, even <laughs> these people who are astray. Because their own bodies betray them. Their own, their own blood pressure, pulse. Idolate, the whole thing betrays them. They react like religious people. When confronted with a hostile God who threatens them, they react like, even they don't believe in this God. Their own fitra still reacts, even though mentally they may not believe it. 
And, and, and that is a vindication of the Quran's teaching on the fitra, actually, a scientific confirmation of the Quran on this subject. And it, it, it also confirms the part where God says, uh, whatever bad you do, like, it's on you. Like, you're doing that to yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, these people, they have literally, they, their body, like you said, their body is uh, going against them and their body is in tune with the, the truth, yeah. the reality of everything. Yeah. Their intellect, their mind may not be so. Right? So their mind is kind of like acting like this veil, which is crazy if you actually get into um, the New Age stuff, the um, Hinduism and stuff, and they talk about the awareness, the consciousness and all this stuff. Well, the main thing that they say here is that when you're thinking all the time, it's almost like a veil between you and the present moment because it's like how can you really be present having a conversation with someone if you're in your head thinking about something? Well, now revert it to this. You have an atheist who's like thinking all these different beliefs in their head and like that's acting like this veil, but that doesn't change the reality. And their body is showing that reality. SubhanAllah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's amazing. And this is how, in many ways, science confirms religion, actually, in ways which are not generally known. Um, you know, whether it be about the design of the universe and exquisite fine-tuning and the incredible engineering of biological machines you see in cells and the DNA and the information. I mean, so many examples now of what I call intelligent design in, in the universe at a massive macro level and at a very, very small level. Yeah. Um and in ourselves, and the examples I've just given, you know, with, with the science uh, about that, um, the indications, the the ayat, the signs are there if you want to see them. And I like what you just said about being present, about seeing there, not having, you know, the filter of uh, these words and ideas floating around in your mind. If you're just present to it, it's obvious. Um, so being mindful is is a key to seeing reality, I guess. Mm -hmm. This is like absolutely amazing because I've been thinking about it the last few minutes, and subhanAllah, like every if you think about it, every single prophet who was sent to their people, what did they say? They warned them about you know, worship one God alone, or you'll face the punishment of Allah. So, if you think about it, the reason why this is the message, and once they deny that, they're they're kafar and they're punished, is because their body always reacts to it, so they always respond to it, but they don't always. You know, accept and act upon it. So it's yeah. kind of like on the day of judgment, the body's gonna remember that it had that reaction. Exactly. Like, oh, you know, you know. In fact, exactly. it says that, doesn't it? Somewhere, I forget exactly where that our bodies will be a witness uh, yeah. against us. Yeah. Uh, but that's also true in in this life. That you know, according to the science, you know, you can you can read the atheist. He's responding like a believer here to yeah. these these one statement about you know God will curse your mother. Why should that matter to you? Yeah. You're an unbeliever. But you still react like a believer. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, it, it's uh, extraordinary um, yeah. finding, yeah. Uh, and that was a mainstream academic survey. Uh, you know, available to you can see it on, online. Um, re, re, and it's very high level academic research and lots of uh, detail to it, lots of analysis. Mm -hmm. um, I just wish it was more widely known. But um, yeah, yeah. Alhamdulillah. Well, I'm, I'm really, really glad you shared it. Now everyone watching, inshallah, can hear about it. Share this video, share it with someone because it's very important. And, you know, I want to, before we end, I want to tie this into another point that I was actually talking to a few people recently about the fact that we don't talk about hell. We live in a very, like, you know, pleasurable society in terms that everyone's just going for what pleases them. So talking about hell is like, you know, it's a bit taboo. So everyone, you know, even Muslims, they always like, you know, talk about Jannah, talk about heaven. God, you know, will reward you if you do good. The reward you. No one talks about, well, if you do bad, he's going to punish you. He will throw you in hell and you will be punished. And he won't even uh, speak to you after that. You'll call out to him and the angels will, will respond, not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's, it's, it's so evident that no, we need to talk about it because Jannah and Jahannam are mentioned the same number of times in the Quran. Allah mentions them the exact same number of times. Yeah, this is true. Because we respond to both. We respond to the, the, the doing good, getting reward, but we also respond to doing bad and getting punished. And this you know, um, research shows that as Muslims, at least, we need to also tell people that, listen, if you don't go on the right path, you will go to hell. And even people like Cosmic Skeptic, you know, once in a while become scared of the idea of going to hell. And that, you know, speaks, I think, very loudly, subhanAllah.
No, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And bro, it's not fear mongering to say so before any atheist got on us for that. It's not. It's just. It is what it is. It's fact. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If 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 an army was coming to like invade Canada, and I'm warning everyone, they're gonna say, "Are you fear mongering?" No, like there's a threat. Mm. It's only fear mongering when there's no real threat. Yeah, it's it's a healthy fear. It's a wise fear based on realities. It's not just a. Because people say, "Oh, well, why are you threatening me like that?" Well, yeah, if it was just a negative, you know. But this is real, and it, it, it's a healthy fear to have that. It's based on wisdom and understanding, not on, not on kind of you know just being nasty yeah. you know, as you said yeah yeah 100%. this reminds me of uh when Anho was reading the quran and he uh he was reading about Noah alayhi salam and how he was warning everyone and just subhanallah most people just don't want to listen yeah yeah subhanallah um and you know the the, the best part about it, i think like i feel like the chariot on top when it comes to islam is this believing it will only lead to a bad life and a bad hereafter and believing in it will only lead to a good life and a good hereafter. It's like God is rewarding you for treating yourself well. And God is punishing you for treating yourself poorly. And I think at the end of the day, like if you, when you put it like that, subhanAllah, like it, even to, to deaf ears, it'll sound nice. I mean, not everyone's going to believe in it, but subhanAllah, it's, 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 that's beautiful in, in my opinion. Beautiful, subhanAllah. All right, well, Paul. Thank you so much for uh, your time. It was a real episode. It was a lot of things that I learned that I didn't know I needed. And uh, may Allah reward you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a great, it's a great pleasure and honor to be on your show. So thank you very much indeed. All right, alhamdulillah. Until next time. Until next time. With that being said, Allahumma atina fi dunya hasana wa fi al-akhirati hasana wa kina adhaab al-nar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.